presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Mark Twain, the highest paid writer in America in 1894, was also one of the nation's worst investors. There are two times in a man's life when he should not speculate, he wrote, when he can't afford it and when he can. After losing hundreds of thousands of dollars back when beer cost a nickel, he found himself neck deep in debt. His heiress wife Livy took the setback hard. She wrote, I cannot get away from the feeling that business failure means disgrace. Twain vowed to Livy he would pay back every penny. So, just when he imagined he would be settling into literary lionhood, he forced himself to mount the platform again. He did what no author had ever done. He embarked on a round-the-world stand-up comedy tour. Richard Zack's new book, Chasing the Last Laugh, chronicles this poignant chapter in Mark Twain's life. Richard Zacks is a best-selling author previously of Island of Vice, Theodore Roosevelt's quest to clean up a sin-loving New York, Pirate Coast, Thomas Jefferson, the First Marines, and Secret Mission of 1805, Pirate Hunter, the true story of Captain Kidd, history laid bare, and underground education. His writing has been featured in the New York Times, Atlantic, Harper's Magazine, and other publications. His books have been translated into many other languages. And uh, he is uh, was born in Savannah, Georgia, and now lives in New York City. Richard Zacks, thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Hey, thanks for having me. What uh, what drew you to this uh, subject? This is, uh, I think, a period of Twain's life that some may not know about, uh, who, who only have a cursory uh, knowledge of, of Twain. What uh, what drew you to this? Well, I stumbled on it a little bit. I was always curious about the round-the-world trip, because I had read the earlier travel books. I don't know if, if you know you and your listeners are familiar with Innocence Abroad and... and um, uh, roughing it, but they're they're just wonderful and they're incredibly funny. And so then then comes following the equator, which is probably not his best travel book, but here is you know the funniest man in the world and uh, a famous American writer going around the world doing stand up comedy. And I was really curious about it. It turned out once I looked into it, the speeches were available, the audience reactions, the 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 way he was treated everywhere. It turned out turned out to be a, a really good topic and uh, you know, worked out nicely. This, this was extensively reported on, and, and so you have passages in the book where you'd they'd give his routines and then they'd, they'd have laughter where, where people were laughing as well. Yeah, literally they would write in there, and, and I love the, the speeches he gave. There were a lot of all-male clubs back in that generation, so he would give these boozy late-night speeches, you know, and some of them are, some of them are pretty dark, some of them, uh, you know, he, he talks about, for instance, old age, you know, he's, he's going to turn 60 during the trip and he says but you know i'm paraphrasing here but basically old age is wonderful for those people who don't have it <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. It, it's just uh it, it was good stuff and and i got very lucky the um uh, california berkeley's done this incredible job with the mark twain papers and they released the autobiography that had been embargoed for 100 years to a hell of a lot of fanfare and um they have only gotten up to 1891 with his notebooks and so this little adventure takes place 1895 to 1900. So I got to use a lot of material that people haven't seen. So it's fun. I wonder if you could, uh, if I could have you read uh, part of page three. Okay. Give a description of the man. Uh, interesting to, to to see the man at this point in his life approaching age uh, 60. So uh, starting uh, third way down the page, Twain, who many pictured in a straw hat. Sure. Down to the end of the page. Um, Twain, who many pictured in a straw hat and corncob pipe, performed his stand-up routine on stage in a black evening suit. He never smiled, never, crowned king of deadpan, no props, 
no notes. He called it a reading, but it was really the greatest hits from his best books. And he memorized the whole 90-minute show. He selected choice morsels, such as the celebrated jumping frog of Calaveras County, or how I escaped being killed in a duel. He tailored it. He tailored his material, paced it, paired it. He stood five foot eight and a half inches tall, weighed 145 pounds, wore a size seven shoe, and talked very slow. Slower than that. His daughter and others called it a drawl. It made audiences listen carefully, and it let him go for long pauses and then surprise them. Samuel L. Clemens, the living, breathing man who sometimes wrote and performed as Mark Twain, was a wonderful hodgepodge of uplifting sentiment and bad habits, of flash mood swings from temper tantrums to jokes, a fellow of stunning irreverence and of conventional yearnings for praise and wealth. He raced to judgment and often rude it. He avoided curse words in deference to his wife, but created a spectacular genre of vitriol. He smoked two dozen cigars a day. He drank a hot scotch most nights. He demonized his enemies and former business partners. He haloed only his closest friends and helpers. He embodied so many contradictory traits in such ample helpings, envy, generosity, suspiciousness, gullibility, loyalty, paranoia, arrogance, insecurity, that no one, not even he, could predict his moods. And he was, uh, he was a big celebrity, right? He was, uh, and I think he, uh, he, did he enjoy that? Yeah, he, he was a big celebrity, but it, it was really interesting. He was called the greatest humorist um, in America and possibly in the world. But, of course, we always want what we don't have. And here he is in this family. He, had, he married an heiress, a coal heiress, um, Olivia Langdon, and he had three daughters who all happened to have had very refined educations. <laughs> and they were actually embarrassed to a certain extent <clears throat> of the Mark Twain side of him. I mean, his daughter um, Susie, at age 13, said, how I hate the name Mark Twain. He is not just a maker of funny speeches. They wanted him to be this literary star. I mean, I'm not going to say Henry James, but, but, or William Dean Howells, maybe, or Edith Wharton. They wanted someone to get, who got massive respect for his literary writings. And here, here is this man who's the, just almost a once-a-century sense of humor, and, and he would, um, he would later, his wife would convince him, uh, encourage him to write personal recollections of Joan of Arc. And Twain, in 1907, near the end of his life, called it his best book. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. What I loved about Twain were the contradictions. I, I could really relate to them. I think a lot of people could. I mean, he wanted to be this wealthy man, but he also had this gambler streak in him. He wanted to be, he couldn't help but be really funny, but he wanted the respect of literary prizes. He just was such a mass of contradictions. And so he's he's living this lifestyle. In fact, it, it seems ostentatious, right? A show. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. At, at the same he, time, he's losing massive uh, quantities right. of, of money. He's a very, very bad investor. Right. He was just an absolutely atrocious investor. He had, I, I mean, the way I put it is he had moonshot enthusiasm and no <laughs> patience for details, which if you think about it, I don't know, you know, you or your listeners... Um, buying stocks, but, you know, you can't get overly excited about Tesla without reading, you know, some of the details, or Apple, or, or worse than that, Theranos, that uh, blood finger prick stock, you know, I mean, you have to, uh, you have to have the patience for details, and Twain just absolutely didn't, and he, he found this um, typesetter, I mean, there's, 
there's a, a dozen devices that he lost money on, but the one that he got absolutely wedded to was called a page typesetter, and um, it had 18,000 movable parts. It weighed almost four tons, and the whole idea was that ever since Gutenberg, back you know 400 years earlier, people had set type basically by hand. They took little pieces of metal or wood and they just slammed them into a into a, a case and tightened the case with spacers and uh, and printed. And here was everyone was racing to make an automated device that you could press a key and the, the letter would automatically be filled into the slot. And the, but it was incredibly complicated. If you think about it, the spacing so that lines are justified, lines are even, is incredibly challenging. And so Twain had the misfortune of witnessing the page typesetter work perfectly one day <laughs> and fast and, and smooth. And he was convinced that it, it literally would change the world. He thought it was a bigger uh, invention than the, the telephone or the telegraph. I mean, the, his enthusiasm was unbelievable. And uh, the trouble was, once you ran the thing for about half an hour, there were little bits of ink or, or little fragments of metal would, would break off or get gum up the works. And the man worked on it, uh, Page worked on it for almost um, 20 years and never never perfected the thing. And Twain just kept sinking more and more money and signing contracts that were ridiculous. And uh, it, uh, it basically took all his money. And so I think especially it's his wife who had this horror of bankruptcy, right? She said business failure, uh, she, 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 it was disgrace. Right. I guess that came from the, the class that she was... Born into right. Or? She had grown up the wealthiest uh, in the wealthiest family in Elmira, New York, which is a bit of a provincial, you know, upstate New York town. But on the other hand, they were the wealthiest family, and they lived in the mansion. And uh, she had, w- was just used to this. Uh, she was brought up with a kind of code of chivalry, you know, which which one could argue sometimes. Um, I think uh, Twain wrote one of his maxims: "Prosperity is the best protector of." Um, of principle, because you know when you're wealthy, it's very easy to stand in judgment of everybody else. You've never really been put in the fire, and uh, so so Twain, um, so Livy basically had incredibly high standards for behavior, and Twain loved that about her, adored it about her. She she was incredibly fair-minded. Her father was an abolitionist. He helped uh, helped with the Underground Slave Railroad, um, and. Uh, she held Twain to a higher standard than he held himself most of the time. And um, there he was sort of in this conflict between, I mean, the way I put it, his inner riverboat gambler and his inner Joan of Arc. Uh, he had mm-hmm. to figure out what to do. And Li- Li- Livy-, Livy wanted him to pay it all back as quickly as possible. Where did the idea come from? This, uh, Of course, he had... He had saleable commodity. He had his, right, his, his celebrity that he could, he could go sell, I guess. So where did the idea come from? Uh, well, first off, he had done, um, uh, you know, he'd obviously written all these books already. He'd written Huckleberry Finn, he'd written Tom Sawyer, but his, uh, I mean, the writers call it, his backlist wasn't exactly selling. I think his last royalty check was $150 or something like that for a quarter. Um, and so he couldn't, he couldn't, he needed money quickly. I mean, there, it wasn't like they were going to starve. Livy still had some inheritance coming in. Um, but in order to pay back the $80,000 in debt, which is basically $2.4 million in modern money, he needed to make money quickly, and that was the era before radio or TV or any other options. And so the choice was to go out on the stage. And uh, he, had done, he had started his career basically telling stories about his trip to the Sandwich Islands, which was Hawaii, 
And, um, you know, he'd done stand-up before. It was, it, it's not, you know, I use the word stand-up in the book just once or twice. I mean, it, it, he wasn't telling one-liner jokes, but, but it is a little like, uh, I don't know, um, some of the stand-up comics of today who tell a whole story about being in a hotel room and the waiter comes and the whole, you know, it's not just one-liners. It's, it's anecdotes. And um, Twain had done it before. And what's little known about Twain is he, he actually hated performing in front of large crowds. And it wasn't um, stage fright. It was basically humiliation fright. He um, he didn't. He said, once an audience has seen you stand on your head, they're going to expect you in that position forever. Hmm. And uh, he did not want to be seen as a, as a clown. He he wanted all this respect, and there he'd get up there, and and they'd be laughing their heads off. And uh, part of them part of them loved it, and part of them was embarrassed by the whole thing. What did uh, I wonder what Livy what did Livy think about this because I, I I assume that would be a danger in her mind as well she didn't want her husband to be permanently typecast as the clown did she Absolutely that's a really good point um, Livy um, Livy actually wrote him a note a couple times when he was in New York uh, trying to solve business things and he would be invited to dinners and he would tell his stories and then he bragged to her afterwards and and she say don't make your yarnings too common. Um, she she was not thrilled about it, but she so desperately wanted to pay those debts off that she put a good face on it. And she actually, to her credit, she traveled, she agreed to, she had never gone off on the road with him before for performances. And she was considered sickly. And uh, she was always being treated by a doctor for something or other. And uh, she she went around the world with Twain and they took one daughter with them. So it was basically a extended family vacation. And uh, for the most part, I think, uh, you know, it was one of the highlights of her life to see all these exotic places, to go to, I mean, the, the image of Mark Twain and his family in India riding elephants. I mean, people just don't think of Mark Twain that way. And it's actually, I mean, it's, 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 it's a good story. Mm-hmm. So. Let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll, we'll hear uh, about the Round the World uh, tour. The, the book is Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's Raucous and Redemptive Round the World Comedy Tour. Richard Zacks is uh, the author. Um, when we come back, I want to hear, uh, maybe I can have you read uh, from page 82, Richard Zach's uh, some, a sample. This is the reports in the newspapers with, you know, laughs and paragraphs where you got the laughs. Um, and uh, I also want to hear about, you open the book with an example of how uh, Twain was, was treated like royalty in many areas around the world. Uh, they got to go on this quote-unquote roller coaster ride in the, in the Himalayas. More following the break. Now through Friday, November 18th, the Finch Lane Gallery in Salt Lake City will host art exhibits by Benny Vanderwall and Alexi Ray Johnson. Vanderwall's Desert Trash Escapes will explore the effects of human waste and entitlement, while Johnson's exhibit, Wait Here Please, will take viewers to places they've never been. More information about these exhibits and other events happening in Utah is available on our website at upr.org. What do women and girls living in and then leaving their polygamous communities have in common with an engineer from San Francisco who rocked and rolled with a group of girls from Cache Valley? We were curious. Are you? 
Well then, stay tuned to Utah Public Radio during the month of October, where we will share their stories and others from Utah organizations working to empower people who are objectified. During a UPR special program series, Objectified More Than a Body, we'll air their stories and others here on Utah Public Radio, helping to enlighten our communities about ways to look beyond someone's body image. An original Utah Public Radio series in partnership with the Utah Women's Giving Circle, Utah State University Center for Women and Gender, and Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Moab Area Travel Council whose support of tourism, events, and recreation in Grant County promotes and protects the natural beauty for visitors from across the state of Utah. Information available online at discovermoab.com. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're hearing this... uh, poignant, interesting story, a fun story, uh, in the book Chasing the Last Laugh. Richard Zacks is the author. He's joined us. The subtitle, Mark Twain's Raucous and Redemptive Round the World Comedy Tour. Uh, He's, in 1894, was one of the highest paid, was the highest paid writer in America, but he's uh, perhaps America's worst uh, investor at the time. He lost a lot of money, so uh, Round the World Comedy Tour was the solution. Um, Richard Zacks, I want to paint a little bit more picture of the the family. So Clara, I think the the, the middle daughter was selected to go with them, right? Uh, to, so Susie's the older daughter, uh, and right. Jean is uh, Jean. I think has what we would term epilepsy. today uh, epilepsy and perhaps some other problems. Right, Jean. They hadn't diag- they hadn't officially diagnosed it. The family was in denial about Jean's problems, so she was just being diagnosed with epilepsy right around that period. And she would have temper tantrums, and she would have what are called absent-mindedness, which apparently were absent absent seizures. And uh, and the uh, the oldest daughter, Susie, was 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 pretty neurotic and um, self-doubting, a little like her father, and incredibly witty. And had only spent, uh, you know, one year at Bryn Mawr and uh, didn't, didn't know what to do with herself. But the middle daughter, Clara, was, was the best adapted for, for life. And she, she played the piano, and she was popular, and she was attractive. And she drew a lot of, a lot of interest from, um, from people as she traveled around. She would play the piano in hotel lobbies occasion, occasionally. And so um, she was the best suited by far to go on the trip with them. There's a photograph in the book of Susie. The caption uh, says her expression maybe says that she was sad to be left behind. I don't know Absolutely. what her feelings marooned were. Absolutely yeah. uh, marooned in Elmira. Elmira, New York, was uh, was where the the you know the the female the the maternal side of the family uh, had all their wealth, and uh, she was staying uh, staying with her aunt, and um, she just considered that society so provincial. I mean, she had lived in Paris. Uh, she had she had lived in Europe. I mean, the idea of being in the farm in Elmira was. Probably not a great plan, but but Susie wanted to see some friends in America, and she backed out of the trip, and Clara got to go. Uh, so the, the they started out in America before they headed uh, around the world. I wanted to talk a little bit about how Mark Twain's I don't, I don't know if you call it routine his evening sure. began. He, he started. He wanted to link everything <laughs> together with with morals, right? And then, yeah. then after a while, well, there's he, also he a little funny it. bit about introductions, and I, I can relate to this. I mean, I've been on a book tour now for a couple of weeks, on and off, and uh, 
he, he, uh, he hated introductions. He said it was always some dreary host's attempt to make jokes or to praise him, overflatter him. And then when he got out there, the audience expectations were so incredibly high, you know, that he could, you know, he just, he hated it. So he f- eventually just decided that he would walk out on stage unannounced and he wouldn't smile and he would put sort of one, you know, lean his hand on his head on his chin you know, hand on his chin and, and, uh, start talking. And it, takes real courage to uh to to start things that way and he was able to do it um but but you're right his his routine was uh he mined the best material from his earlier work i mean i would argue that you know all of us probably are, are a lot funnier you know in our most of us in our younger days and, and more enthusiastic and he he would take some of the uh some of the some of that material but he he also thought it was a crime for authors to just read from their books um I'm still happy to do it later if you want. But, okay, uh, he, he he thought that um, that it just needed to be adapted. It needed to be tailored, and mm-hmm. he believed that it was a really subtle art, figuring out what audiences would like. He like he wanted to do a twelve uh, practice speeches in front of live audiences to find out what material worked and what material um, didn't. And and I can vouch for that. I have a few. You know, I've been borrowing some of Mark Twain's material to do my my uh, tour and. Uh, some of the things you think are going to be incredible, you know, work on paper and they're not good. And then other ones that you didn't, uh, here's one that's just been going over great. Um, few of us can stand prosperity. Another man's, I mean, <laughs> you know, that, that one has been slaying them. So, mm-hmm. but then other ones that you would have thought were good, they don't work. So, mm-hmm. but you, I think you, we started, you asked me about, um, well, I'd like to, somewhere. I'd like to d- divert where you're, where you're taking us. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, you, so doing Twain, I get there. There are no recordings, right? So how <laughs> do you? No recordings. No. How, how do you? How do you I decide how to do a, Twain? A Twain scholar that that implied there, there had been, and and he, I asked him to write back and be a little more specific. So I got to be a little careful here. You know, you, once you write a book, you you get a lot of people telling you uh, little things to correct in future editions. So uh, as far as I know, there are there are film versions of him walking along, silent film version. There are plenty of those, but. Uh, he recorded his voice because he thought he was going to, because everyone knew what a great speaker he was. He thought he could dictate books. So he was one of the first people to buy an Edison. The original phonographs, wax cylinders, they both recorded and uh, played back. So he, he thought he could just speak into it and, and basically churn out books. And it did not work out that way. So, and then he worried that if anyone ever recorded him, they would sell pirated wax cylinders, you know, the way people now, mm-hmm. you know, on the Internet, whatever, streaming sources or something. He he worried about being um, being ripped off, so he didn't allow his performances to be recorded. So as far as I know, we we don't have his voice. We do have some imitators who heard him. You know, people like in the 1930s or 40s who were trying very hard to do a perfect Mark Twain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this um, you say you'd use the word the phrase only a couple of times in the. In the book, but it's something that as modern audiences we can relate to: stand-up comedy. Um, right, right. The, the, so there were really no punchlines, but it was very funny. How well, how close yeah. was this to stand-up comedy? Well, I I think it's really. Cl- I mean, I, I've been watching. Uh, you know, I don't watch as many of the HBO specials or whatever as I could, but I heard some Aziz Ansari and I heard um, Louis C.K. and they have to tell a story. They have to put you in. You know, they're you know as they're going through checked luggage or as they're trying to meet someone in a bar so they, they create these whole stories and then there's a punchline and it's i i think this really twain's would play a lot like stand-up comedy for instance the one you chose 
was him discovering the limits of his own courage. And, uh, I mean, I think it's a really funny story, and it, it builds to a really unusual, I mean, I don't know if you still want to do it, but it yeah, builds yeah, to yes. a, a really unusual punchline that it's a little little hard. I've tried it, <laughs> I have to admit, I have tried it, I tried it in one of my speeches, and it, it's hard to get the, it's hard to completely uh, sell people on the punchline, but. Uh, yes, if you go ahead, and uh, this is page 82. Uh, sure. Um, okay, so just to, to set up, um, Twain, Twain is, um explained that his father uh, was the town coroner, and he had a little uh, tiny bird coop-sized office with a sofa. So here's what Twain would, would, was saying in, in his uh, performance. He'd go, Often when I was on my way to school, I would notice that the sky was threatening, that it was not good weather for school, and very likely to get wet, and I better go fishing. So I went fishing. It was wrong. Yes, it was wrong. That's why I did it. Forbidden fruit was just as satisfactory to me as it was to Adam. If he had been there, he would have gone fishing. I always had more confidence in my own judgment than I did in anybody else's. And now when I returned from those unorthodox excursions, it was not safe for me to go home for I would be confronted with all sorts of ignorant prejudice. And so I used to spend the night in that little office and let the atmosphere clear it. So um, Twain uh, recounted that that day in Hannibal, uh, a street fight had broken out, and a man had been stabbed in the chest with a bowie knife, and his corpse, stripped to the waist, was, was on the floor of his father's office. Well, I arrived about midnight, and I didn't know anything about that. And I slipped in the back way and groped around until I found that sofa and laid down on it. And I was just dropping off into that sweetest of all slumbers, which is procured by honest endeavor, when my eyes became a little more accustomed to the gloom. It seemed to me that I could make out the vague, dim outline of a shapeless mass stretched there on the floor, and it made me uncomfortable. My first thought was to go and feel of it. And then I thought I wouldn't. <laughs> Well, my attention was carried away from my sleep. I was just beyond that thing. And Twain waited for the moonlight to come through the mirror. But it got so dreary and so uncanny and sort of ghastly waiting on that creeping moonlight that the mystery grew and grew in size and importance, and all the time it got so that it didn't seem to me that I could endure it. Then I had an idea. I would turn over with my face to the wall and count a thousand. <laughs> Give the moonlight a chance. <laughs> made it as high as 45, drifted off a few times, and then he saw a pallid hand. I sat right up and began to stare at that dead hand and began to try to say to myself, be quiet, be calm, don't lose your nerve. So I did the best I could and watched that moonlight creep, creep, creep up that white dead arm, and it was miserable, miserable. I never was so embarrassed in my life. It crept, crept crept until it exposed the whole arm and the white shoulder and a projecting lock of hair. It got so unendurable that I thought I must begin to do something sometime or other. Somehow or other, I closed my eyes, put my hand on my eyes, and held them as long as I could stand it, and then opened them. And then I got just one glimpse, just one glimpse. And there was that drawn white face, white as the moonlight, and staring glassy eyes, the mangled body. Just one swift glimpse, and then, well... I went away from there. I did not go in what you might call a hurry. I just went. That is all. I went out the window. Took the curtain sash with me. 
Didn't need the sash. It's handier to take it than it was to leave it. So I took it. <laughs> he's he's uh, it's, it's kind of one of us, right? He, he's setting himself up. It's kind of self-parody. It's uh, he's he's trying to be uh, courageous, but he's but he in, in the end he's not. And most of us right, have done totally. That well. And the punchline yeah. of the, the whole story is really: I took the sash. I didn't yeah, need it. Apparent. Right. I mean, reviewer after reviewer said that audiences <laughs> were gasping for air. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, it had it had to be in the delivery and the you know it's just just getting into that moment so completely and seeing this this serious 60 year old man standing there and talking in that voice. I mean, but it's, I've given up trying to do that as part of my book tour. Right. I mean, it's just, it's too hard. Maybe Hal Holbrook could pull it off. It's too yeah. hard to get there. Right. Uh, and part of it, uh, in what you describe in the book, he, he had an incredibly slow delivery. I guess it forced people to, to I know. And I didn't the have story the just now to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to do it. He did occasionally um, get a little animated when he got in character. Now, for instance, when he did Huck, Huck and Jim on the raft on the Mississippi. He would actually do a Negro voice, and he would do a ignorant white trash young man, you know, voice. And and he even wrote in his notes to it says in the margin blubbering, you know. So he mm-hmm. would clearly do blubbering. And he did a, a few very minimalist physical comedy things. For instance, he has tells the grandfather's Ram, old Ram story, and he uh, you know, he has to start it with the point that his grandfather's up in a meadow and there's a a ram way above him up a hill and the grandfather drops a dime and he bends over to pick up the dime and twain would lean forward like he's like he's bending over to get the dime and sort of look and you know later glance the other way and you know there's a ram up a up a hill that's barreling down to just send this old man flying and the whole point of the story (laughs) twain will never tell you what happens and mm-hmm. that takes unbelievable nerve to, mm-hmm. he basically want to talk, wants to talk about the wandering mind, about someone who keeps going. And I'm, we've met that person. I mean, they start to tell a story and then they, they get lost about some woman in Birmingham or some man who they met during the, and, and they just, you know, and I always say there, there's a point lurking somewhere to my wife when she starts doing it. But uh, Twain had the nerve to stand up on stage and do it just about a 15 minute story that, that never tells you what happened to the old man with the ram. <laughs> if you just joined us, you're listening to Axis Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for that was Richard Zacks, and we're talking about his book, Chasing the Last Laugh Mark Twain's Raucous and Redemptive Round the World Comedy Tour. Uh, it was. Interesting, it was uh, Twain's wife, Libby, who suggested that he add in some serious material. She, she said, You'd, you don't want to just do funny all evening. Right, she did. And he, she was, I think this is also part of her personality. She, she didn't love that, that he was the stand-up comic and that uh, um, people were just laughing constantly. But I think she also had a great sense of, of what would uh, work for her husband. And she, she thought he underestimated his ability to tell uh, poignant, more serious stories. And uh, she suggested adding in um, something serious. And he, he put in uh, Huck and Jim on the raft, which is all about conscience. You know, does one have the nerve to defy the community conscience? The community conscience then was slaves were property in Missouri. And if, you, if there was a runaway slave, you returned it to its rightful owner. It belonged to that person. And here's this ignorant, you know, hooligan boy you know, Huckleberry Finn, does he have the nerve to defy what he's been taught from the first day in school, that he's supposed to tell on Jim and return him? And so it's a pretty profound moment for all of us. Uh, and uh, 
she she believed that that her husband could tell the story, and he tried it in Minneapolis about I don't know a couple weeks into the into the world tour, and it went incredibly well. The audiences just loved it, and and for the rest of the trip, it was either the the most popular uh, segment of his six segments or the second most popular. People mm. people really liked, it. and and he also did the voices and the rest of it. But there, I mean, it's a great it captures you you know back into the Huckleberry Finn story. It's great. And you, you go on to you quote uh, Twain one line um, in a crucial moral emergency, a sound heart is a safer guide than an ill-trained conscience. And then you say, go back and reread that line. So I will. In a crucial moral emergency, a sound heart is a safer guide than an ill-trained conscience. You go on to say that's the essence of all Mark Twain's writings and beliefs. Right. I th- I I believe it, to a large extent it is. I think he uh, he his strongest work by far is. Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. I know a lot of people will disagree with me, but he, he's, I don't think he's as strong when he becomes this later-in-life moral philosopher on anti-imperialism and uh, starts weighing in on a whole lot of different topics. Um, I think he's at his strength when it's, when it's about, bo- young, I don't want to say boys, I just want to say you know, young people who have to trust their heart more than, uh, more than, more than some of the, you know, he, he becomes very down on religion at times because he believes some of the things that have been taught as accepted religious practice are basically run contrary to a boy's heart. You yeah. know? So uh, I think it does go to the heart of Mark Twain. And Huckleberry Finn, I think, as many have commented on, it really I don't know, captures the, the moral struggle of the nation as well. Um, I agree, and I, I'm having such a hard time. I understand. I'm not going to say the N-word, obviously, mm-hmm. but I, I have such a hard time with people throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, that was the standard word of the time, and Mark Twain was an absolute crusader for uh, improved race relations, for the rights of African Americans. He could be one of the in the top ten of all Americans who have ever lived for improving race relations. So to to damn him, uh, sorry, to uh, to tar him for uh, that one word, it, it's just it, it's really ridiculous. He should stay on the curriculum, I believe, and uh, people should should realize what incredible courage. I mean, that when he's writing too, the the Ku Klux started the the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan and and some very horrific attitudes towards blacks in in the South were happening, and and Twain stood up to all that by telling that story. Mm. And uh, you know. You bring that book and those moral lessons forward today. We we still haven't completely resolved this. No, we really haven't. And I think this political correctness that wants to to dump Mark Twain is is indicative of people losing sight of the bigger picture of what's more important. I mean, yes, it's a it's a bit of an old old story, but I mean to to, to single it out over that word is is just beyond ridiculous. And mm-hmm. and. Um, it's interesting. Clearly, they were wrestling with that uh, at the time because when he wrote, I believe it was Tom Sawyer Abroad for a, a, a children's magazine or a young adult magazine called St. Nicholas, um, the woman changed the N-word to Darkie back in 1895 mm. or so. Wow. So they were already, um, they were wrestling with it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did, uh, I, I think the the agents had no problems selling these these evenings right did so yeah. this was uh, this was mark twain's fame so well there was it's interesting we forget about what life's like before air conditioning just since you brought that up he had they didn't want to book him into he happened to start his trip in the summer in the united states and they didn't want to book him into the cities because um these unair conditioned theaters were were really a problem so 
Um, they booked him mostly in places of higher altitude or places by the water so that it would be a little cooler. Um, and uh, he didn't wind up getting to play, for instance, um, uh, some of the big cities where he could have made more money. He did places like, you know, Butte and Olympia and Spokane. And, uh, um, but they didn't, you're right, they didn't have trouble. And, and ironically, he made a lot more money in Australia than he did in the United States. And I'm curious what, what Mark Twain meant at that time. The, the people were going to get a, what, a funny evening, or especially uh, abroad. What, what did, was Mark Twain seen he, as the quintessential American? What, what did they think they were getting? Yeah, absolutely. He, I think he was probably the single most famous living American. Maybe Ulysses S. Grant, who had done a world tour. They're, you know, non-living, obviously, George Washington. But, but uh People, his books, uh, Twain's books had sold very well in England. He had been marketed properly by a company called Chateau and Windus. And, and so he was billed as the greatest humorist of the century, which is a little bit of a, you know, that would stress you out to, uh, yeah. to, to come into Sydney. <laughs> it's one thing to be, you know, famous American writer, but greatest humorist of the century. And, and he delivers everything. They were shocked. No one knew how, what his performance style was. And this man with a shock of, Silver hair gets up there and complete deadpan delivery, talking incredibly slow, and it went really, really well. They uh, they loved him, and they sold out the for the four scheduled performances Sydney, very large theaters, and then they added a fifth and came back and did a sixth, and uh, he did really well down under. Uh, in in the parlance of today, he killed. I think he'd, uh, yeah, man, he yeah, man, he definitely <laughs> he killed it, and and it started to improve his mood because. Mm-hmm. He felt so angry at himself. He felt like he had, I mean, he had actually. He was on the verge of ruining an amazing career, ruining his family, ruining his finances. I mean, I would argue that, that if, this, if this trip hadn't gone well, we would not be talking about Mark Twain today. The, the books wouldn't be in the schools. His backlist was almost dead. He, he, was his, he actually could have lost his copyrights to the bookbinders, the printers, the banks that he owed money to, and then they would have been scattered. And what if... You know, some estate chose not to release Huckleberry Finn. He, those copyrights were up, and uh, I mean, it's it's a slightly complicated part of the story. But he got advised by one of the sharpest men on Wall Street how to protect his copyrights. It was it was slightly illegal, um, but uh, they they figured out a way to protect the copyrights. And and so when he did come out of debt and did pay basically pay everybody back, the copyrights were still intact, and they were able to release a complete uniform edition of Mark Twain and. That's the edition that we all know. That's that's what kind of reignited his fame. Let's take another break. Uh, we'll come back with our last segment with Richard Zacks. The book is Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's Raucous and Redemptive Around the World Comedy Tour. More following the break. One of these men will be a heartbeat away from the Oval Office. People in both parties are restless for change. America looks in the mirror. And what is it that we see there? Mike Pence, Tim Kaine. Where do the vice presidential nominees stand on the issues? Find out Tuesday when they go head-to-head in their one and only debate. I'm Robert Siegel. Join me for live coverage and real-time fact-checking from NPR News. Tuesday evening beginning at 7 and preceded at 6 by a debate featuring candidates for Utah's 2nd Congressional District right here on Utah Public Radio. 
Cache County candidates and Utah congressional candidate representatives will answer your questions during a Meet the Candidates Night in Logan. Utah Public Radio and the USU Student Association Government Relations Council are partnering to give you access to ask questions of your candidates before the November 8th elections. Join us Tuesday evening at 7 in the USU Huntsman School of Business Perry Pavilion. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with Richard Zacks, author most recently of Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. I want to hear, uh, have you tell a couple of stories uh, from the tour. First of all, though, I'd, uh, maybe jump a bit to the end. Um, this could have gone badly, as you said before the break. Um, and, and, and Twain was most worried about humiliation, I guess, both out there on the stage, but also you know, in the end. But uh, you're right, what's so odd and wonderful and forgotten is that most America, when it found out about Mark Twain's financial disaster, wound up loving him more for failing. Uh, they did for failing and also paying it all back um, it, because it, there was a thing that we've forgotten today called the Panic of 1893 where basically credit seized up and, and Americans, uh, millions of Americans out of work. It was an incredibly tough time, close to a depression, and a lot of businessmen were basically using the, the bankruptcy. There, there wasn't actually a U.S. bankruptcy law there, but they were using the state laws, the equivalent of bankruptcy laws, to uh, not pay off their debts in full. And the idea of a, of a writer, no less a comedy writer, paying uh, everyone back in full, it, it was just front-page news. People, people were amazed that Twain did it. And this was Livy's, you know, that high chivalry side of, of the uh, marital couple. And uh, it worked out incredibly well. People were really inspired that Twain had done that. Uh, I want to talk about, uh, and of course, I think we know that uh, uh, Twain outlived his wife by, what, 10 years Six or something? Years, Six yeah. years, okay. Um, and I wondered, some of his later works are pretty dark. I know, and it's it's frankly been bad for me to, to, to be, have an egocentric universe here, but uh, a lot of people associate older Twain with very dark Twain and very unhappy Twain, and... I would say that from this book occurs almost at the, around the last super joyous moment of his life. I, I don't, this is not a dark book at all. This, this is a man who, who got knocked down and fought his way back and has a triumphant return to New York in 1900 and to America and is hailed as a great writer and great humorist. And it's just wonderful then but unfortunately Livy does get sick and um, she gets very sick and from 1902 during her illnesses and then uh, they unfortunately the doctors recommended an isolation cure which was popular then and Twain couldn't even see his own wife he had to write her little notes in the morning it's so sad and and she couldn't see him and and it just breaks your heart that, that some idiot basically decided this was the best way to treat her because it didn't didn't cure her at all um, and uh, Twain needed her to break his moods, to, uh, mm. to, to bring just some normal family joy into his life, to cut through it. And when he didn't have that, it became very hard. He, was, he had lost one daughter. He had another daughter uh, with epilepsy who was institutionalized on and off during that period. And, uh, he, and his third daughter he was a bit estranged from, and she was wanting to perform in Europe. And so Twain was isolated a lot, and his work definitely reflects it. But um, 
I mean, I wrote a book, and I wouldn't have written a book, frankly, in the last about the last ten years. I wrote a book, sort of the last triumph. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you tell me some stories. the 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 one with which you open the book is is fascinating. I can't believe that he got to do that. Just, I'm so just incredibly tell, tell us about so, that. So there's this railroad in the Himalayas, um, the Darjeeling Express. People have heard about it. There's a Darjeeling Himalayan Express is a movie, I think, and uh, and it's it's up to to uh, the tea plantation, seven thousand foot elevation, and and the, it was an engineering marvel. They had to have four zigzags on the track; it was so steep. They had to have four horizontal loops back through tunnels, and the British railway officials set aside thirty five miles of this track for Twain to use as a personal roller coaster, which was just, <laughs> I mean, the idea of it. They sat in a six seater car in, in canvas seats. There's no mention of seat belts. All they had was a handbrake to stop them, and they got to go down this this mountain track, um, and they could basically go as fast as they chose until they they pulled the brake. I mean, it wasn't just them; there was an you know engineer in the car with them. But he thought it was the single absolute best day. Uh, I mean, he's full of hyperbole. It was certainly the best day of his trip. In some versions, he says it was the best day of his life. But picturing Twain sitting in that chair with that bushy mane of hair, you know, and the cool air off the Himalayas, and Gating downward, zooming downward, rousing, tingling pleasure, he described it. And uh, they started in furs and wound up in shirt sleeves on, <laughs> at the bottom on the plains of India. He loved that day. That's just, uh, just incredible. So he, he, he described that as the, maybe the, the best part of the tour. What, what, are, uh, what are some other parts that he described? Oh, God, some of the worst was um, he was in um, New Zealand, and they, uh, uh, a ferry boat had an engine problem, and they put two uh, passenger lists of uh, two uh, entire onto one boat and just crammed them all aboard for an overnight trip and twain you know and they hit into a storm so everyone started uh, getting seasick and he he claims that they they put a curtain up in the um in the, the main dining room and men were on one side and women on the other and that he had a really large woman um on the the table they were sleeping on tables with the curtain in the middle that a large woman kept elbowing him throughout the night and his daughter found all these huge cockroaches, and the, the they, they just that was just that was probably the, the single worst day of the trip. Mm. Um, he, he he loved it. The other highlights were riding the elephant twice. He was very he admits he was scared the first time he rode an elephant, and um, later he decided he liked the view into the second story windows. Um, yeah, he, I guess so. <laughs> he he there were just lots of it. He, he saw Zulus do a, do a dance in South Africa. He got to help pick out the diamonds from the, um, from the rubble on the conveyor belts and the Kimberley mines. He, he, India was his, certainly his favorite country that he visited. And he, he went to the shrines and witnessed, he couldn't believe, um, you know, the, the people bathing in the Ganges near, near corpses basically, and near, near sewage runoff. And, you know, the, the, he said the one thing he could say about their their approach to religion is that they were sincere, mm-hmm. because the things he witnessed, he you know that, I mean a rational person probably would not do some of the the, the things the the rites and rituals that they had to do, but uh, he loved India. We just have about a minute left. Uh, um, I was struck by, and this kind of brought it forward to today, he, you say that he liked self promotion but hated interviews. He even made a comedy segment on how to baffle reporters. <laughs> yeah, he did. I, you know, it's always dangerous trying to imitate Twain, but he basically said that he had a twin brother, and that that one of them had a uh, birthmark, and that one of them was t- drowned in the tr- 
tub, the one with the birthmark, um, and then he pulls up his sleeve and goes, oh, wait, I have the birthmark. And, and he just, uh, you know, he had three different places where he was born and three different ages that he was. And he, he basically was a man with the shortest attention span, which is why he's so incredibly funny. So he just was trying to amuse himself. He got bored so easily. He, he said that he was going to, they'd ask him, so what's your travel book about? And he'd say, well, my travels. And then after a while, he just got so sick of the question, he said, um, hydrophobia, seamanship, and wallpaper. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't stand we're, it. We're <laughs> well, we're, uh, we're out of time. There's much else in the book. Uh, um, we didn't get to talk about uh, Mark Twain meeting Helen Keller. That's Chapter 29. You'll have to read it. Uh, Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. Richard Zacks is the author. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you. This is great. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. In the Utah desert, we tell visitors, don't bust the crust. Last week, 150 scientists from all over the world gathered in Moab to talk about the importance of biological soil crusts. John Kovash reports. It's been called cryptogamic, or microbiotic, or cryptobiotic. It's that thin crust of lichens, fungus, and moss that grows where nothing else will grow. In the last decade, a growing group of scientists have concluded that this crust is a critical element in the survival of the planet. If you hear some highway noise, it'll be worth it because we get to travel in a van with some of the leading scientists, including Sasha Reed, who is based at the U.S. Geological Survey Station in Moab. And the first was in Germany, and then the second was in Madrid, Spain, and then this is the third event, uh, the largest yet in a growing community of biocrust scientists, and it's here in little Moab, Utah. Reed is co-chair of the conference, along with Matthew Bowker from Northern Arizona University, who is driving our van. We're in a fleet of scientists headed for a remote experimental station in the Canyonlands. Bowker lists some of the countries the passengers are from. We have the United States, Canada, Mexico, Peru, Brazil, Spain, Germany, France, Niger, Algeria, Israel, China, uh, now I'm slowing down, uh -oh. Australia, <laughs> Iceland. I think people should start thinking of crust as the living skin of the earth and what we want to do is learn how to regrow the living skin once it's been damaged or lost. Riding shotgun is Dr. Jane Belknap who heads the Moab USGS station who has just received a Lifetime Achievement Award for her role in pioneering this new field. Jane is just epic in the biocrust world. She has been an incredible force of nature in increasing our understanding of biological soil crusts, in bringing that community of biocrust scientists together. Belknap has published massively on the subject and, and was editor of a 2001 book that ultimately made her the Pied Piper of the biocrust world. We have nuked crusts over such a massive landscape in the western U.S. Now we have to start to figure out how to fix it. Utahns really should care about biocrusts and keeping them healthy here. It's one of the biggest reasons that people in the Wasatch Front could relate to them is dust. So we get massive dust storms moving into the Salt Lake area and Provo and Ogden coming from the deserts and mostly that's a result of soil surface disturbance or fire, both of which will smash the crust and keep them from stabilizing the soils. 
Belknap and her colleagues were the first to observe and study the pink snow phenomenon, where desert dust gets blown into the mountains and causes earlier snow melt, and fugitive dust happens when the crust is suffering. Recreation is a huge impact to soil crust in Utah, but we have really a large amount of work to do to get people to stay on the trails, to stay on the roads, you know, the designated corridors of travel, whether you're on foot or on bike or in a car. Plus, it just looks nicer for everybody visiting. I mean, it's not fun to go to somewhere, you've put a lot of effort and money into getting there, and what you see is a bunch of tire tracks. This isn't just a Utah thing. Modern biocrust science began as a German-American collaboration. When you add up deserts and drylands, we're talking 40% of the planet. Thomas Fischer from Germany's University of Technology was among those examining the robust cryptos in Canyonlands. So we, have, we also have maybe dry regions, but the key is the appearance of these lichens, of uh, algal crusts, of cyanobacteria, and they are worldwide, even in the Arctic, mm -hmm. or in, in Africa, in Asia, Australia, in America, everywhere, on every continent. That means pink snow in the Himalayas as well as Colorado. But NAU's Matthew Bacher, after studying crusts in numerous western states, has become optimistic. We're going to see major breakthroughs in the next 10 years. Um, we found that we can grow quite a lot of the crust organisms. Uh, sometimes we can get the ones that we grew to live in the field. Uh, so we need to get better at both of those things. And then we need to figure out how to do it big. How do we go big scale? And there's been some impressive achievements in China that are large that we should look to and we should uh, perhaps emulate. Reporting from the Needles District of Canyonlands, this is John Kovash for UPR News. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.